Southeast Radio's morning mix. Chat, news, and your views. Alan Corcoran. Alan, nice to talk to you. Lovely to talk to you as well. So, having worked as a marine scientist for almost 20 years now, what efforts uh, do offshore wind farm projects take to investigate the environment in the areas of proposed projects? Well, I think you and, and your listeners will probably be aware that all offshore wind projects need to apply for planning permission. And as part of this planning application process, we prepare what are called environmental impact assessment reports, uh, or an EIAR. And one of the fundamental elements of an EIAR is to give a really detailed understanding and description of the existing environment. And we need to know this so that we can then assess accurately what impact a wind farm might have on, on the receiving environment. And I'll give you a couple of examples of the types of surveys that we carry out. So Birds and mammals are key areas of consideration when we when we talk about offshore wind. And we carry out monthly aerial surveys across the different project sites. So that's basically a plane flying, flying across an area multiple times every month. There's cameras pointing down at the sea surface. It's recording the, the birds, the mammals, the sharks, the turtles, even the odd walrus in the area. And we get a really good understanding when all that footage is is analysed and we know what, what species use the site. We know when they use it. We know the activities that they're involved in during their, their time in that area. And more importantly as well for birds particularly, we can estimate and understand the height that they fly above sea level. And that's really important when we talk about certain species like gannets and gulls, which, you know, the salties are are protected for because they can fly at the same height as the rotor. So there is a collision risk there. So we need to properly understand uh, what's going on in, in that regard. And then there's other groups of birds that come into Ireland to spend the winter here. And there's a number of different important sites in Wexford as well for these these yeah. geese and ducks. And we need to understand the areas and the routes that they enter the country so that we can keep that in mind when we're when we're siting our wind farms and, and consider all of that. And for the birds and mammals alone, we're talking about a minimum of two years worth of data. Right. We then look at, let's say, under the water itself. So we look at the habitats on the on the seabed, species that are there, the flora and fauna. We this and this also includes the the shellfish and the fish species, the habitats that they rely on, and the food sources that that they rely on as well. And there's a number of different ways that we can collect that sort of those those sort of samples. So we have grab samplers or dredge samplers, and they'll take a physical sample from the seabed. And then we also have sort of different underwater camera systems that can, that can gather all that sort of information. So that's just I suppose a snapshot of yeah. the marine environment and some of the ecology surveys. We also have to do similar surveys on shore, breeding birds, bats, for instance. And then we also look at the physical environment. So seabed mapping, um, the winds, the waves, the currents. What, what they're all doing in the area. And then in addition, there's also the, suppose, the social or more human element where yeah. we look at things like traffic, navigation, noise and archaeology. So, okay, and I'll stop you there because yeah, yeah, I just want to ask you, you you've, you've given us a detailed analysis there of the marine environment and the, the mammals, etc. But on, on the other side of things, what should we avoid doing to protect the marine environment? So from a human point of view, what should we be doing? Yeah, so there's a lot of things we can do at, at the, the, the design stage and when we're planning these projects. And the first is to avoid. So you avoid the, the most sensitive habitats, let's say the breeding sites, the nursing or the spawning areas and, and those migration routes that I mentioned. Or indeed you just avoid a particular activity at a sensitive time of the year. Now it's not always the case that, that we can fully avoid these types of areas. So the next step we have to take is to try and mitigate and, and reduce that impact as much as we can to, to an acceptable level. And there's a couple of different things we can do when we look at that. So one is, if you think about uh, how we would install a turbine right during the construction phase, 
we either have to drill or pile the, the foundation into the seabed and that creates noise and vibration, right? And we know marine mammals and fish are very sensitive to this. So we can put in during the construction phase, what are called, and this was the simplest uh, version of this, is, is a bubble curtain, which is essentially where we have a hose sitting on the seabed in a circle around the, the drill head or the pile. There's holes in it and we pump air into it. So it actually causes this curtain of bubbles to come from the seabed up to the surface. And believe it or not, those bubbles can actually reduce the amount of noise then that, that enters the marine environment. Now, the bubble curtains in themselves aren't suitable in every environment. There is... Uh, more solid structures that you would use in, in different environments. But I suppose the main thing is there is things that we can do to, to minimise the impact. Right. Um, going back to the, the birds, so as I said, mentioned, there is a collision risk uh, for some species. So what we can do in that scenario is if you actually can raise the height of the turbine blades higher up from the sea surface, it actually means that more birds will fly underneath it and out of the collision risk zone. So there's a lot of different things we can do okay. to, to help protect the, the, the marine environment. Right. Are there benefits for the marine environment from offshore wind, Dr. Caroline? There are. And, and so there's been 20 years, at least, of offshore projects in other jurisdictions, and, and particularly the UK. And there's been lots of monitoring and studies done. And, and we can see now, and we know that wind farms do have a positive impact on, on biodiversity. And so the example that I'll give you is if, if you ever have taken a buoy or even a boat out of, out of the water, and you'll start to see this marine growth on, on the hull of the boat, that's essentially what happens to any structure that's put into the marine environment. So these these turbines, the foundations, will very quickly start to get colonised with marine growth. So little bits of algae, barnacles, mussels, things that you'd see on, on a, let's say, a rocky shoreline. And over time, these develop and they become much more complex. You get anemones, you get lobsters, you get crab, you get the smaller fish. And they then, of course, attract in the bigger predatory fish and marine mammals. So quite quickly, you get this build-up of biodiversity and it's what's called an artificial reef. And these then, in and of themselves, will attract in juvenile fish because they'll get shelter there, they'll get protection, and, and there'll be food for them. Yeah. So this increases the biodiversity, and naturally, this all occurs naturally, and there's there's a spillover effect then into the wider area, which can which can benefit um, over a larger area. And that all, as I said, occurs naturally. Now, we can actually take further steps to actively encourage this, and we can put down structures that are specifically designed to attract in specific species. So for instance, if we if we know there's lobster or crab in an area and we want to enhance enhance the, the area for these species, we can put in reef cubes or fish hotels. Yeah. There's different structures that you can place around a turbine to actually add to the biodiversity. And we're hearing an awful lot about okay. biodiversity net gain and nature positive. So this is very positive. I, I, I know I've spoken at length to the fishing industry about this particular issue and there were concerns about mussel beds, etc. Um, and oysters. Uh, uh, but when it comes to the fishing industry, are there opportunities for the industry as well from offshore wind? There are, and again, so there's, there's opportunities of coexistence that we as an industry fully support that. And we, we realise the fishing industry provides a vital service you know, as, as renewable energy does. And we can develop coexistent plans with, with individual projects and the, the fishing industry within those, within those areas. There's opportunities at the early stages of a project to help in the design uh, and to make sure that fishing can be encouraged and can continue. And I suppose when we talk about the spacing between the turbines or we talk about the protections that we use for the cables or indeed how we will arrange the cables within the wind farm, all of that can be designed and factored in with the input from the fishing industry to encourage the fishing can continue. Again, pointing to the to the UK and other jurisdictions, there are some really good examples of coexistence and how the two industries can work together. Uh, one example is in the waters off Bridlington on the east coast of 
of England. It's the lobster capital of the world. And when they started uh, the development of some offshore wind farms over there, there was naturally great concern about that. But the two industries came together. They came up with research projects and monitoring proposals and over time worked together. Uh, and the, today, that lobster fishery is still thriving as it was before before the wind farm. Yeah. Uh, in the Irish Sea as well, there's what's called the, the West of Morecambe Bay Fisheries Fund, which was set up specifically to fund community projects to directly benefit the fishing industry. Yeah. And some examples of that would have been funding a lobster hatchery in the area. Uh, and so there is really good examples of best practice. And there's no reason why that the same can't apply here. There is an offshore renewable energy and seafood working group established currently working on ways to ensure that, that both industries can coexist in Ireland. My final question for you, Dr. Caroline, is are there opportunities for people to feed their local environmental knowledge into projects? There are a lot of people very interested in this. I know they have suggestions. They'd love to forward those suggestions. Can they do that and where do they do it? Absolutely. So all projects will, will have... Um, a whole series of consultation and public engagement events throughout the, the development life cycle. There's a number of specific ones linked to that to that EIA. Uh, and the first thing that we all do as <clears throat> when we're planning our projects, we do what's called an EIA scoping report. And this sets out what we're going to look at in the EIA, how we're going to do our surveys, what are the areas that we're seeing are important. And there's an opportunity at that stage for local communities, fishing industry, to come back and feed in what they know about their local area. They know the areas better than any of us. And all of that information will be incorporated and addressed in the EIA. And in some instances, if, if a feature uh, becomes apparent through that process that we need to change our plans as for the wind farm, all of that sort of stuff can happen. Southeast Radio's Morning Mix. Chat, news and your views.